out. Everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I've got my producer, Joel, here in the studio with me. And today we are tackling Son or Sons of Sam Part 2. And if you haven't seen the Netflix documentary, The Sons of Sam, Descent into Darkness, it's by far one of the best, I think, true crime documentaries I've ever seen, just because I think they included so much information in there that's really going to make your head spin and really make you completely question the official narrative of the David Berkowitz shootings. There's just so much more to the story that was collected by this reporter named Mari Terry, or journalist, I guess you should say. It will just, I mean, it had me totally blown away by the end of it. And that is what we're diving into today is, you know, in part one, we went over the shootings and we'll, you know, kind of retrace our steps a little bit. But this episode's really about looking at the alternative story, the other narrative that's out there that maybe David Berkowitz wasn't the only person involved in these shootings in New York City during the 1970s. So that is what we're getting into today. Before we do though, I just want to remind everybody that the best way to support the podcast and it's free is to make sure you subscribe to us on Apple podcasts and YouTube. It really does help us out. You know, we put a ton of work into these both between Joel and myself. I mean, we spend hours and hours and hours preparing, producing the show. I mean, it's literally just us. There's Uh no like team behind the scenes that we don't mention. Like this is two brothers you know, producing this show together. And so it does really help us out, helps the show grow. And, you know, while you're at it, you know, on Apple podcasts, you can actually leave us a rating or review. Yeah. That really helps. We love seeing the reviews. I mean, we always still to this yeah. day, check Every time it all we, the time. We always like, before we record, we come together and we talk about some of the reviews and, you know, feedback. We look back at previous episodes to see what you guys thought and, you know, maybe where we can improve on things. So it does really, really help us out. If you do those things for us, we'd be, most appreciative also we're going to be working on our new merch collection i'm very excited for that um hopefully i'll have some more information on that in the next uh, couple of weeks Mm -hmm. but we're still looking through designs that have been sent to our email which oh yeah which by the way is uh lop at milehire.com and uh yeah i mean we keep getting plenty of emails and lots of cool design ideas and stuff like that so and just like topic suggestions topic suggestions we get a lot of as well so yeah definitely email us anything you got uh or you recommend for us always checking the email so even if we don't reply back we are seeing your emails we just get a lot of them we just get a ton of them so (laughs) we'll be replying the emails all day if, (laughs) if, if we did reply all the emails so yeah thank you to all that have sent us emails we do really appreciate it and it does help us kind of figure out you know what's what you want to see because you know not surprising at all a lot of you have a lot of the same suggestions and Mm -hmm. ideas for the show and so it's it's pretty exciting stuff and we're also kind of in the process of planning out our next studio move i think we mentioned this on a previous episode but we're working on building out a brand new sort of lights out specific studio which will be really really cool we're very excited to unveil that hopefully i'm crossing my fingers we'll be in that studio by the end of june so in a couple weeks hopefully we'll be you know sitting in a totally new setup we're going to completely kind of go back to the drawing board of yeah of kind of the whole you know vibe of the show and kind mm-hmm. of readjust to better fit you know the topics that we cover yes. so lots of exciting things happening on lights out i gotta say 
absolutely love doing the show mm -hmm. and you know we're most appreciative to all of you out there that support us every week listen to us watch us we really really do appreciate it but let's go ahead and get into this episode this episode is actually brought to you by honey plush care candid and pretty litter and yeah let's get into part two of the sons of sam so between july 1976 and july 1977 there were eight random shootings all around new york city different boroughs seven people were injured and six were killed and there was absolutely no clear motive at first the police were completely baffled and the public was just petrified at what was happening then the shooter started writing multiple cryptic and strange letters to taunt the police leaving one at a crime scene and sending another to a columnist named jimmy breslin but days after the eighth shooting a witness came forward who believed she saw the shooter and that same night, an officer had ticketed a car on her street. The police actually linked the parking ticket to a mild-mannered postal worker named David Berkowitz. And this was, you know, how they found the son of Sam. So soon after this, David was arrested for the shootings, and he just came out and confessed to everything. He ended up pleading guilty in June 1978 and was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences for the shootings and for setting over 1,400 fires as well all over new york city and as far as the state of new york was concerned and the nypd the case was closed you know what we got her guy this is it you know everybody can sleep easy and you know no more shootings but david you know he was a disturbed and resentful man who planned these attacks and executed all eight shootings by himself but that's just not the case there's more to the story than that and this is where our story begins for today's episode but the main problem with the theory that was put forth by the police and by you know the justice system was that and it was david berkowitz and him only but the problem with this is that the description of the shooter from eyewitnesses that were there that saw him changed drastically from one crime scene to another the first shooting was in july 1976 donna Lori, who died instantly but jody valenti survived and she described the shooter as a white man in his 30s, about five foot eight and 200 pounds. He was pale with short, dark, curly hair. Her father saw this man sitting in a yellow Volkswagen, and neighbors saw the same yellow car driving around the area just before the shooting. And based on Jody's description, the police created the first composite sketch of the suspect. Donna DeMassi and Joanne Lomino survived the third shooting in November 1976 and provided a description of the shooter as well. They said they were approached by a man in military fatigues who looked to be in his early 20s and spoke in a high-pitched voice. The police then created a second composite sketch. The next shooting was in January 1977, and John Deal was with his fiancée, Christine Frond, at the Wine Gallery restaurant in Queens. And as they left, they bumped into a man outside. The couple passed by him politely and got into the car, which was parked at the curb. But before John could drive away, the window shattered, and someone had shot three times directly into the vehicle. Christine was shot twice and died hours later. John later identified the man they bumped into outside the restaurant as David Berkowitz. He was positive there wasn't enough time between their encounter and the surprise shooting for David to be the triggerman, though. It had to be someone else. Witnesses from this shooting and the next in March 1977 helped the police create a third composite sketch that looked very different from the others, 
And if you're watching this on YouTube, we'll put the actual sketches up there for you to take a look at because they certainly don't look at all alike. That June, after the shooting of Judy Placido and Sal Lupo, two witnesses saw a tall man with dark hair and a leisure suit running from the scene. The description conflicted with statements from previous witnesses at the other crime scenes. And the last shooting was in July 1977. Witnesses saw a yellow Volkswagen around the neighborhood that night, just like the one that had been seen by multiple people before the first shooting the previous July. And witnesses gave a new description of the shooter to create a fourth composite sketch. And this sketch looked nothing like the previous three. It was a thin man with a gaunt face and straight dark hair. David was a heavyset man with thick curly hair, so clearly not the same guy. 19-year-old Tommy Zeno and his girlfriend were parked in front of victims Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Volante that night. And Tommy got a good long look at the shooter while he was standing in the park, and he saw a thin man with long hair. Tommy watched the man walk up to Robert's car, shoot, and then run away. And he later said that there was no way the man that he saw running was David Berkowitz. Here's how he described it in his own words. Uh, he was in, he looked like he was in good shape. Because after he fired the shots, he took right off it back into the park fast. The police then created a sketch based on Tommy's description. And so far, Tommy was the most reliable witness they had from any of the shootings. But the sketch was never released to the public. It looked absolutely nothing like David. Investigators theorized that the shooter wore different wigs at each crime scene and dismissed other changes in descriptions as eyewitnesses just, you know, getting the details wrong because of them being in a stressful situation. But almost everything about the shooter's appearance changed from one crime scene to the next. The shooter was described as a white male in his early 20s to mid 30s. His hair could be curly or straight, shorter or long, dark or blonde. His jawline could be square or triangular, wide or narrow. And he was described as both below average height and noticeably tall. So all of these things, I mean, one person can't alter all these different things. I mean, you can't alter right. your jawline. You can't alter your height. No. And let's be real. I mean, how many times have we seen killers running around with a bunch of different wigs on you know it's, right. it happens but i feel like it's kind of rare or even like human suits the only one was ed gein yeah or yeah or going that far <laughs> yeah. good god yeah so yeah it doesn't make sense but even then i feel like you know people you know for the most part people know what they saw you know mm-hmm. like police always say that you know victims witnesses aren't reliable you know, and you can't trust what people say because, you, you know, in the moment you're you might fuck things up. And that's true. You might fuck up minor details. But when you're talking about the height of somebody, the hair color. Yeah. You know, whether, you know, their jawline was square or triangular. And if, if you got a good look at somebody, don't you think you would be able to distinguish the difference? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, it's just kind of hard to think, you know, why the police are so resistant to this idea of there being multiple shooters. And I think it does go back a little bit to what we mentioned on part one was, you know, they, they thought they had the, the killer and they just wanted to put the city at ease right. once, once and for all and just the not pressure. continue the panic. Exactly. Yeah. And just the pressure that was put on them True. was so immense that, you know, they, they were really starting to freak out. Cause right. like, what if we can't find this guy? Mm-hmm. What if, 
you know, what if there is multiple? I think they considered the idea of multiple people, but when they, you know, got their guy and he confessed to all of it, yeah, they just were like, oh, this is this is easy, this is convenient, uh-huh. you know. Clearly, this is the guy that did it, and they just want to close the case. Yep, but no, that's definitely not what happened. One consistent detail from eyewitnesses was the presence of a yellow Volkswagen Beetle. But David Berkowitz drove a yellow Ford Galaxy, which if you've never seen what these vehicles look like, I don't know how anyone would mix these up because a Volkswagen Beetle is like one of the most, or Bug, is one of the most distinguished looking vehicles Mm -hmm. of all time, I would say. You know, and then the Ford Galaxy is a much bigger, you know, normal car i could see somebody confusing like a chevy you know equivalent to a ford galaxy and mixing that but no we're talking about two very different cars right and the volkswagen it's just the love bug i mean everyone knows that yeah exactly her uh what's that movie called uh kirby is it herbie or Or herbie (laughs) i know there's that famous movie i don't know why every time i hear love i I think that's what it's from yeah or something from that movie anyways there was also a problem with the timeline of the last shooting. Robert and Tommy both saw the shooter lingering in the park at 2.20 a.m. A witness named Cecilia Davis came forward a few days after the shooting, saying she was walking her dog Snowball about two blocks from the crime scene and saw David at 2.30 a.m. And the shooting happened at 2.35 a.m. So David couldn't have been the man in the park. Seconds after the shooting, witnesses saw another man with light-colored hair, possibly a wig, running from the park. He then got into the yellow Volkswagen and sped away, running a red light and nearly hitting another car. Witnesses also reported seeing a red-colored van in the area that night. And all of these details were just dismissed by investigators. Former NYPD detective turned investigative reporter Jim Mittiger befriended David while he was in jail. And David sent him a note that said, There are other sons out there. God help the world. So despite all that, the police still did not investigate the multi-shooter theory at all. Not only do you have eyewitnesses seeing different people at different times, David's in a different spot where he couldn't have been in another spot nearly at the same time the shooting's taken place. And then an NYPD detective literally gets a note from David Berkowitz in jail where he's saying, guys, there's literally other sons of sam out there and guess what god better help the world because they're unleashing hell upon it so if david didn't act alone then the next question that comes up is who were his accomplices witnesses from the first shooting described a man who looked just like david's acquaintance john carr turns out there were several connections between david and the carr family john's father was david's neighbor sam carr which would make John the actual son of Sam. Sam's daughter, Mickey Fay Carr, nicknamed Wheat, worked as a police dispatcher. When an officer called about David's parking ticket, she helped connect him to the son of Sam shootings. John and Wheat looked very similar, and neither one of them could pass for the first composite sketch made by police. There were clues in the son of Sam letters that alluded to the Carr family as well. One letter named John Wheaties, rapist and suffocator of young girls john's middle name was wheat and john wheaties was one of his nicknames john lived on nearby wicker street and the letter also named the wicked king wicker 
There were details about the Carr family's private life, too. According to other neighbors, Sam Carr was an abusive father. He beat both of his sons, John and his younger brother, Michael, and even locked them in the attic to punish them. The first letter said, When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. So interestingly enough, after David gets arrested, John Carr moved to Minot, North Dakota. And he'd actually lived there in the mid-1970s after serving in the Air Force. But he was in New York during most of the Son of Sam shootings. When he moved back, he stayed in a housing unit at Minot Air Force Base with his girlfriend. But soon after he arrived, he went to see a counselor and said he thought someone was trying to kill him. He also said he had information about the Son of Sam shootings, but didn't want to come forward because he thought he would be in trouble with the police. The counselor could see John was agitated and believed that he was really scared for his life. Because a short time later, John was dead. On February 17, 1978, Deputy Glenn Geetson responded to a call about a trespasser at the housing unit. After hearing a gunshot from the inside the house, John's girlfriend led Glenn to a back room where he found a bloody scene. John was lying dead on the floor. He had been shot in the head, and there were skull fragments and brain matter on the wall and blood all over the ceiling. His death was ruled a suicide, but it definitely took place under suspicious circumstances. Michael Carr also died under suspicious circumstances just 18 months after his older brother. In October 1979, he was in a fatal car accident on Manhattan's West Side Highway. It was a single car accident, and the police report noted that the scene looked suspicious, as if someone may have run him off the road. The Carr brothers were dead and could no longer speak for themselves, but there was evidence that they were involved in something far bigger than even the Son of Sam shootings so this is where things kind of go from you know a whodunit true crime case to a much darker element that may be in play here we're talking about the occult devil worshipers cult connections and this is where it just really started blowing my mind the connections that they start making so before we get into that we're going to take a quick ad break and we'll be right back So one of the really interesting things about the Son of Sam letters is that they had lots of references to both Satanism and the occult. And there were rumors in Minot that John and his friends were involved in witchcraft. Apparently, they allegedly held secret ceremonies near their housing unit that involved killing German shepherds and drinking their blood from a chalice. An acquaintance actually saw John drawing a strange symbol on a phone book. It was identical to the Son of Sam symbol, but the symbol itself wouldn't be released to the public for another four months. So literally, you know, in the area near, you know, where they actually lived, the cars lived and David Berkowitz lived, there is this tunnel system that if, you know, if you went exploring into, you would literally walk into what looked like a ritual room. I mean, there's symbols all over the wall. There's clearly, you know, been some type of animal sacrifices that have happened there. I mean, it's just a really eerie and spooky place. And it was definitely a place where they were doing these rituals and ceremonies. A man named Phil Falcon actually claimed he witnessed John and another friend performing a ritual that involved animal sacrifice. 
and Phil said that they belonged to an extremely violent satanic cult. The Minot police heard the rumors that John was involved in cult activities. They had proof that David Berkowitz not only knew John, but that he had been to Minot to visit him. And for weeks, the officers sent verified reports and evidence to the Brooklyn DA's office, and they expected that someone from the Son of Sam task force would look into it. But literally nothing ever happened. There was also evidence that the Carr brothers, David, and others participated in cult rituals back in New York around the exact same time that the Son of Sam shootings were going on. And one of the letters actually alluded to these rituals and their locations, and it read, Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind her house, some rest, mostly young, raped and slaughtered, their blood drained, just bones now. And journalist Mari Terry, which really did the deep dive investigation on these alternate theories, believed that this referred to an area of Untermeyer Park in Yonkers, New York. As Mari had been investigating the Son of Sam case since before David's arrest, and he actually published a series of articles in 1979 refuting the lone gunman theory. And he would later conduct interviews with David Berkowitz and write a book about the case called The Ultimate Evil. And again, the letter read, Behind her house, some rest. A trail to Untermeyer Park was directly behind Sam Carr's house. Along the trail is the old Croton Aqueduct, a 41-mile-long waterway that shut down in 1955. Locals referred to it as the gutters or the sewers. And the Son of Sam letter to Jimmy Breslin started, Hello from the gutters in New York City, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers in New York City, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. And inside the abandoned aqueduct, Mari found dead animals, including dogs that had been mutilated and shot. On the property was a two-story house where the maintenance worker used to live. And the back rooms of the house were a known spot in the 1970s for rituals that involved satanic worship and animal sacrifices. And the rooms were even called the Devil's Hole. There were even rumors that the bodies of two young boys were buried near the house. In the early 90s, a man claimed someone had ordered him to dig up bodies back in 1967. People had heard animals screaming in pain around the area and had even found a beheaded German shepherd and another with a missing ear. Built into the side of a hill was the pump house, a stone structure with small door leading to a poorly ventilated room. It had been abandoned since the early 1900s and was nicknamed Devil's Cave. Inside Devil's Cave was a platform that looked like an altar. The altar was surrounded by graffiti, including white supremacist and neo-Nazi symbols, the number 666, inverted pentagrams, paintings of Satan, and the same symbol used to sign the Son of Sam letters. The path outside the Devil's Cave was a dangerous place in the 1970s. There were multiple reports of cult rituals being performed there, and a teenage girl was even kidnapped from the path and raped. Witnesses reported hearing chanting and seeing candles, torches, and people gathered in robes and hoods. While David Berkowitz lived in this area, multiple fires were reported, including at least two houses and a pile of garbage outside his apartment. Two dogs were shot in drive-by shootings, including a German Shepherd that was killed. Two more German Shepherds were strangled and shoved into plastic bags and thrown along the trail near the aqueduct. The mail carrier for the neighborhood actually committed suicide, and many believe the strange things happening in the area may have attributed to it. 
During multiple court depositions, David admitted that he was part of a cult with John and Michael Carr, and he claimed the brothers had been killed in order to keep them quiet. And this cult called themselves the Children, and had a special interest in sacrificing German shepherds. One of the dead dogs found in the park was actually missing an ear. And a friend of John Carr's in North Dakota had a taxidermied ear of a German shepherd. Authorities had the receipt from the taxidermist as proof. After David was convicted, a retired detective named Kevin Murphy tried to interview people involved in the cult activity, but they all refused. A man named John Paul, who went to high school with John Carr, agreed to talk to him. And he actually said that John tried to initiate him into the group when it was still fairly innocent. But eventually, things took a dark turn. He confirmed that the group started torturing and killing animals and participating in drive-by shootings in order to kill neighborhood dogs. There is a rumor that David Berkowitz left his former residence in Westchester without notice and without getting his deposit back because he hated his landlord's German shepherd. After he moved to Yonkers, he allegedly started adopting German shepherds just to sacrifice them. John and Michael may have gotten involved with cult activity through Scientology, believe it or not. Michael had joined Scientology to help with his problems with addiction, and he ended up becoming a high-level member of the church. The link between Scientology and the occult is the Process Church of Final Judgment. The Process Church was established in London in 1966 by Marianne McLean and Robert de Grimston. And they had actually been thrown out of the Church of Scientology a few years before and borrowed practices they learned there to form their new religion. Marianne was known as the Oracle, and Robert was the teacher. And they believed a person could gain enlightenment by worshiping the four parts of God, Jehovah, Christ, Lucifer, and Satan. Eventually, Christ and Satan would become one entity, and this would trigger Judgment Day and the end of the world. The way to reach Judgment Day was to bring together good and evil by causing violent chaos. Members of the Process Church believed the apocalypse would happen in their lifetime, so they were fully committed to spreading violence and destruction across the world. They actually sent groups to multiple cities in the United States, including San Francisco, Los Angeles, New Orleans, and New York City, in order to set up miniature versions of the Process Church in order to commit violent crimes and expedite the apocalypse. Members always travel with their signature dog breed, German Shepherds. The children were allegedly one of the offshoots tasked with committing crimes to spread chaos, like animal mutilations, arson, and eventually murder. The Process Church also had influence over another violent cult, the Manson family. Charles Manson himself taught his followers that the joining together of Christ and Satan would trigger the end of the world, or helter-skelter. And like the Process Church, he believed the catalyst was violent chaos, and in this case, the violence would be a race war. He decided they would help trigger Helter Skelter by committing murder. Charles Manson had actually written an article for the Process magazine and attended a party with founder Robert de Grimston just a few months before the Manson family murders. And after he was arrested, he was visited in jail by two members of the Process Church. A few years after he was convicted, the Process Church went underground in the U.S. just before the children started performing rituals in Untermeyer Park. Around the same time, there was a ritual murder at Stanford University in California. A 19-year-old newlywed named Arliss Perry from Bismarck, North Dakota, 
was murdered and mutilated in a church on campus. Campus security guard Stephen Crawford reported that he found her body on the morning of October 13th, 1974. And the way that she was found suggested that this was in fact some type of ritual murder. As she had an ice pick in the back of her head and was likely beaten and strangled. Her blouse had been ripped open and an altar candle was placed in her hands and over her chest. She was naked from the waist down with her legs spread wide apart and a three foot long altar candle was inserted into her vagina. Her jeans were laid over her legs in a diamond shape. In 1979, David Berkowitz mailed a book to deputy sheriff in Minot, North Dakota from prison. The book was The Anatomy of Witchcraft. And in the margins, David wrote, Arliss Perry, hunted, stalked, and slain, followed to California, Stanford University. The officers in North Dakota had actually been looking to her murder. And there were reports that she and her church group had actually tried to convert the satanic cult members operating in North Dakota to Christianity. In 1981, David Berkowitz wrote a letter mentioning the murder, and a Santa Clara police decided to interrogate him about it. A few years before, another inmate had actually slashed David's throat, and he almost died. So David refused to cooperate with an investigation against his attacker, and he refused to talk to the Santa Clara police about Arliss Perry's murder. He told them that if he named the names, people on the outside would kill his father. Here's a clip of David actually talking about how he was worried about people on the outside coming for his family if he named anybody specifically. Yeah, that's the scar, yeah. When I went down to the infirmary, uh, the doctor there who stitched me up said it was a miracle that I lived. Queens District Attorney John Santucci had actually reopened the Son of Sam case to investigate the multiple shooter theory. Most of the police departments in New York refused to consider any new evidence. Detectives from Queens and journalist Mari Terry had all tried to get more information from David about the other shooters or accomplices and the possible cult connection. However, he refused to talk to anyone. Arliss Perry's murder wasn't solved until 2018 when investigators matched DNA found at the crime scene to the security guard who said he had just found her body, Stephen Crawford. And when police officers arrived at his home, he locked the door and shot himself. And when they searched his house, they found none other than a copy of The Ultimate Evil, the book about the Son of Sam shootings by Mari Terry, in a box in his closet. So we don't even know how, you know, if there had been even more of a connection there. Maybe Stephen Crawford himself was one of the sons of Sam yeah, or maybe. was somehow wrapped up in this cult. Yeah. It's really crazy because literally Mari Terry, he started diving into this and he really was the one who connected the dots between the cars and Berkowitz and then made the connection to the process church of judgment. And from there he started making a bigger web and just realized how deep this right. really went. I mean, there's, so many people all wrapped up into this web. And for all we know, Stephen Crawford may have been one of them. I mean, the fact that he had Mari Terry's book is very interesting. Like, yeah. why would he have that book if he, if, if this was a completely unrelated thing? I mean, maybe it's a coincidence and you just happen to be interested. But to me, I really feel like there's, there's definitely more of a connection here. And that part of the reason why he shot himself is because he knew that if he was brought in for questioning, they right. probably would have started asking him 
about the son of Sam case and his potential involvement in other things. So, I mean, that's a good point you just made. He probably saw like what was going to happen to him if he didn't kill himself. Right. He knew that somebody was going to come for him or something would happen to him in prison. So he just thought better, better just to end it myself. Mm -hmm. Just really crazy though. Just all the different connections and, and the web of, of different individuals. So, we're about to get into probably some of the most dark parts of this story. And so I just want to prepare you for that. But before we get into that, I'm going to take one more quick break and we'll be right back. So let's circle back and talk a little bit more about the process church and maybe some of the people involved with it. Because to me, there seems to be way too many connections to the son of Sam shootings. That is just really hard to overlook. So there was this guy named Ronald Sisman and he was a photographer and cocaine dealer in Manhattan who was murdered with his girlfriend, Elizabeth Platzman, on Halloween night in 1981. They were beaten in his apartment and shot execution style. His apartment was ransacked as if the killers were looking for something specific. A prison informant named Jesse Turner told the police that David Berkowitz knew about this double murder before it happened, and that the process church had actually ordered the hit, because they were looking for a snuff film that Ronald had shot which was footage of the murder of Stacy Moskowitz in July 1977. Ronald was the camera operator that night and was tasked with filming the murder. The film would then be sold by the cult to the highest bidder. So really, really dark shit. I mean, when you're talking about snuff films and people that are are filming literal murders for someone's enjoyment and selling that, I mean, this is really, really dark shit. So the person that may have been the highest bidder of this snuff film was allegedly Roy Radin. And Roy was a wealthy business promoter and theatrical producer who had a mansion in Southampton, New York. The mansion where he lived was known for wild cocaine and sex parties. And when actress Melanie Howler refused to participate in an orgy during one of these parties, she claimed she was beaten and raped by Roy and that the whole thing was filmed. And when police raided the house, they found the video. But Roy claimed it was a consensual BDSM. So he was just sentenced to probation and fined. But then in 1983, Roy disappeared on his way to a conference in Beverly Hills. His remains were found weeks later. He had been shot in the head and the body was mutilated beyond recognition. In the early 90s, four people were convicted for his murder. Karen Greenberger was allegedly angry at Roy for cutting her out of the movie The Cotton Club. And she was accused of hiring three contract killers to murder him but she denied having anything to do with Roy's death. So this was the official narrative that was kind of put out by the police that, you know, Roy was murdered for cutting this person out of the movie, the cotton club, but others speculate that perhaps, you know, something darker was at play here that perhaps this was an actual hit by the process church for one reason or another. I mean, it seems pretty clear that he may have had a connection with them in some way, shape or form. But most of the NYPD were convinced that David Berkowitz was telling the truth in his first confession, that he was the only shooter and that he acted alone. And since that confession, David has never testified in court about his crimes or been cross-examined. And through the decades, he has changed his story multiple times. At first, he stuck to a story that he was ordered to kill by the 6,000-year-old being who lived inside Sam Carr's dog, Harvey. David insisted that this was the truth in a session with his coroner-appointed psychiatrist, Dr. David Abrahamson. Here's a clip. 
And I had nothing against these victims. Who were these people to me? They were just people. I, you know, they didn't, um, I didn't hate them. I wasn't angry against them. So what did they do it? Well, Sam did it through me. He used me. He made me go out there and do it. He, I did it for him, for blood. A few years later, he started writing letters to Dr. Abrahamson, and he said everything about the possessed dog giving him orders was a hoax. During a session, he claimed that he was resentful that he never fit in and always felt out of place with other people. Murder was his way of getting revenge on society. David had a history of sending intimidating letters that went so far as to threaten murder. Before the shootings, he had sent one to a neighbor in Yonkers that said, We will kill you. We will murder you. And for years, David continued to send letters to Mari Terry, expanding on his involvement in the crimes and hinting at who the other shooters were and the cult connections. In 1981, he sent a letter to Mari that read, I am guilty of these crimes, but I didn't do it all. Later on in 1993, though, David had a spiritual awakening, apparently, and became an evangelical Christian. And to this day, he's still a devoted Christian. But that year, in 93... He agreed to meet with Mari for an in-person interview as he was ready to share details about his crimes publicly because people hadn't heard from him for a very long time. And during this interview, David said that he had always been fascinated by witchcraft and loved horror movies. And these interests eventually led him to the occult. He initially started practicing occult rituals in 1966 as a young teenager. But when he was in his early 20s, he felt like an evil force was taking over. In 1975, he met some people at a party who took him to Untermeyer Park for a ceremony. It was there that he witnessed an animal sacrifice and just absolutely horrified him. But at the same time, he was also fascinated and wanted to learn more. He then was eventually coerced and convinced to join a group, a satanic cult called the Children. And during the initiation ceremony, he took a blood oath to be loyal to the group and to serve Satan. And in order to do this blood pact, he had to provide pictures of his family members. And he was told that if he ever betrayed the children, his family would die. He also confirmed that John and Michael Carr were members of the cult as well. And they had betrayed the group, which is why they ended up dead. When David joined, he had no idea how far things would go. He never thought anyone would get hurt, let alone murdered. But things spiraled out of control really quickly. He was threatened and manipulated. And, you know thus ended up shooting innocent people as a result. David provided specific details about the shootings and the people involved. He said at every shooting, there were multiple accomplices. In addition to the person pulling the trigger, two to four others served as lookouts or getaway drivers. There were usually at least two vehicles involved. He explained that he was at all the shootings, but he had only pulled the trigger in two. Here's him talking about this. I was at all of them. I was at... uh more or less at all of them, scouting the areas and, and reporting back on likely targets and things. And uh, I did not pull the trigger at every single one of them. He was the gunman at the first shooting in July 1976 and killed Donna Laurie. He was also the shooter in April 1977 and killed Valentina Serrani and Alexander So. Carl De Niro, and Rosemary Keenan, who were shot in October 1976, had only survived because the shooter was a woman who wasn't used to a 44 Bulldog, which has a stronger recoil. John and Michael Carr had also been shooters at one point too. 
and they each resembled the police sketches almost to a T. John had actually shot Donna DeMassi and Joanne Lomino in November 1976. A Yonkers police officer and cult member was also there that night. An outsider was brought to New York by the larger organization for the January 1977 shooting that killed Christine Frond. David only knew this outsider by his nickname, Manson II. The last shooting in July 1977 was also done by an outsider. A man was brought in from North Dakota, and he killed Stacy Moskowitz and blinded Robert Volante. Killing an innocent person was considered the ultimate sacrifice for the children. It was another kind of ritual that they were all required to participate in. The story of this interview spread like wildfire, and every reporter in the country was talking about the new allegations from the Son of Sam killer and the possibility of more shooters being out there, as well as a cult conspiracy and possible cover-up. Survivors and relatives of victims were shocked. Some were angry and believed David was lying, including the NYPD officers and everybody on that Son of Sam task force. There was pushback almost immediately. The media accused Mari of asking leading questions and pushing David to give him the information he wanted to hear, which to some extent I, I kind of agree with that. If you watch some of the, the, the interview clips, it does seem like Mari's kind of leading him to the answers he's looking for. But at the same time, David could absolutely have been like, I don't know, or no, mm-hmm. that's not correct. But I think Mari did a good job at kind of like, you know, pushing him to tell the truth at the same time. But that's just me. I mean, everybody has their own opinion about, you know, whether or not David was being truthful or not. David actually agreed to another interview with Mari in 1997 to set the record straight. But the same thing happened. He provided even more sensational, shocking details about the crimes, and Mari was accused of leading and manipulating David throughout the entire interview. And this time, David talked about the red-colored van at the last murder scene. He confirmed the van was part of their operation. He also said Ronald Sisman, the photographer who was murdered with his girlfriend, had been there that night filming the whole thing. David gave vague details about the Process Church and Manson connections, though, but he agreed that Arliss Perry was murdered by cult members because even at this point i mean in jail i mean he's still very careful about what he's saying about the process church and even charles manson which is kind of interesting to me mari's goal though was to get the case reopened this entire time so he wrote the book i mean he really wanted to you know get the truth out there he really believed that there was multiple accomplices there was multiple people out there that are still running around living life and were never brought to justice and he pushed extremely hard, but unfortunately, that never happened, as David Berkowitz is still the only person ever charged with the Son of Sam shootings, which is absolutely crazy to me, especially after hearing all this information. Right. And all, I mean, just the eyewitness <clears throat> you know, descriptions of the people that they saw are so different between the different scenes. Uh-huh. And the shootings took places in different boroughs in New York. I mean, it's it's very difficult to get from one borough to the next in short periods of time. Yeah. So it just doesn't make sense to me how the police believe that one person was traveling all over these different boroughs and yet was never like caught like mm-hmm. initially. I mean, it's very difficult for one person to pull off execution style shootings in mo- huge, you know, huge vast you know, distance between the different crime scenes. It just really doesn't make sense. But critics believe that at the very least, the investigation was rushed, claiming that after David was arrested, none of the other leads were ever followed up on. And the NYPD never even interviewed John and Michael Carr before their deaths, which is the most mind blowing thing to me. It's like, clearly 
you should at least sat down and talk to John and Michael Carr about what could have been their involvement mm-hmm. or at least talk to them about David and they just right. never did. At least explore it a little bit, not just not give it a look, you know. And that's the thing about the NYPD is like a lot they're, you know, they're I think their motto is like America's finest or something, you know, uh. like they the thing with these larger police departments, especially is the politics. It's like oh, so political that if you admit, if they were to admit that they fucked up or, you know, they didn't look at this better or they missed mm-hmm. accomplices out there, like it would definitely that, affect their credibility. Like, yeah. And all those people that literally made careers off of this case. I mean, there's NYPD officers that literally made huge careers because they were involved with the son of Sam yeah. task force to then, later on have to come out and be like oh yeah we fucked up actually there is it wasn't just david berkowitz it, there's a bunch of people yeah. involved there's a cult there's all these things here i mean that would be you know detrimental to their reputation right right so, so rather than do that they'd rather say nope david berkowitz and and i mean a lot of these these guys that were in this task force to this day are like, oh, well, we looked at everything and there was just nothing there. But it's like you clearly didn't look hard enough because right. this, this random journalist was able to piece it together better than the whole police department. NYPD. Yeah. Which is just it's crazy to think about. It really makes you stop and think about just crime in general, in general. And, and how much the police actually really do know and how much they really do look into cases. Uh-huh. I mean, it really really makes you think wow how many cases out there are police just glancing at and then closing it just assuming assuming things that happened that there's you know more evidence supporting another theory i mean it's just it's wild sure that happens all the time here oh i'm sure it does it's just crazy to think about that even the nypd could fuck up to this point and they claim to be the most prestigious police department yet Yet there's clear evidence that there's multiple people that was involved in these these series of shootings, yet nobody was ever looked at other than David Berkowitz because he gave a confession. It's just crazy. And it blows I, your mind. And I do think you made a great point on that. It was a political battle, I'm sure. Because yeah. I bet there could have been some police officers in the office, like, you know, talking to their coworkers, like, yeah, I'm looking more into the David case. And they're probably like, Oh, you shouldn't do that. Like, blah, oh, yeah. Blah, blah, you yeah. know, so happens more often than you think. Yeah. I mean, you like to think that police do their job to the best of their ability and dig as deep as they can. But they really, I mean, once they feel like they've got a case solved, it's all about mm-hmm. closing. It's like closing cases is like a statistic they want. You know, they want right. to have cases closing in this one. I mean, nobody wants to believe that there's a, I mean, to, to then have to go back to the public and be like, well, actually, there's this cult that literally has people all over the United States that are executing murders like this. I mean, that would just the panic that would ensue if Mm -hmm. they were to have to come forward and admit that would just be beyond anything they would want to ever have to deal with. So it's just easier to kind of keep, I mean, there, there might be people that are still, there might be people looking into the still in the police department that just keep it on the down low. But Mm -hmm. I mean, it just, it makes sense why they, just kind of like case closed. Yeah. We got our guy just to cover and move on. And hope, yeah. I mean, hope for the best that the shootings don't continue. But at the same time, I see the flip side argument is like, well, maybe it was just David because if it hadn't been just David, why didn't the shootings continue? Right. Why didn't they just continue after David was arrested and all of that? And well, I, I think because the awareness 
Yeah. Like once it's, all the investigations going on, it was all over on the news. Like everyone was talking about it everywhere where they went. I mean, they would just make anyone a target. So, and you have to think too. I think part of it is that the roots of the cult, the process church. Yeah. They don't want to be, they don't want to be exposed. They don't want, nobody wants to be exposed. Nobody wants the, you know, if you have a cult and you're doing all these things, nobody, you wouldn't want to be exposed in the daylight right? where all, then your shit's over. Then your cult is over because then everybody's going down. So rather than continue popping off, you know, shootings in New York, they just kind of shut it down in New York and moved it somewhere else, Mm -hmm. you know, and moved it. And that's why the whole Manson family and the, cult killings there so interesting and the connections there i mean we'll we'll cover the manson family here uh here yeah, soon because i, I want to dig into that one more especially after this because there's just a, it makes a lot more sense as far as why charles manson did what he did and you know especially if he's connected to this process church it's super interesting yeah, might even do a whole episode on the process church because yeah. there's a lot more shit to uncover with that too so oh yeah let us know if you guys want to want to see uh, episodes on Manson and the Process Church because we can definitely dig far deeper into that. For Might sure. get a little dark, but that's <laughs> we, why we we're lights out, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So, so to kind of wrap this thing up, the investigations were criticized for taking so long to link the shootings and for waiting to inform the public. And the police assumed that the shooting of Carl De Niro and Rosemary Keenan in October 1976 was a drug deal gone wrong. I mean, they, they kind of come forward for a lot of these killings is that there was other reasons for why they happened. And their reasoning for this drug deal gone wrong theory is partly because Carl had long hair and because the neighborhood was considered safe. And by making the victim a suspect for superficial reasons, they wasted time and could have been spent investigating and linking the cases. Carl has actually spoken out about his frustration at the time, saying that he had to spend six months defending himself while recovering from being shot in the head. And his mother even sided with police, believing they had no reason to lie. Here's Carl talking about how this affected him. Because of my long hair at the time, and because of the low crime neighborhood, uh, they kind of jumped to the conclusion that, um, that it was a drug deal gone bad. So for six months, I basically had to defend myself to my mother. My mother believed the cops. And to this day, Carl doesn't believe he was shot by David Berkowitz. And for the most part, the police have refused to consider any new evidence. As soon as David was in custody, their job was done. The NYPD then held the largest promotion ceremony the city has ever seen. As this case improved their reputation in the community, and for years it was used to win elections and get promotions. If the police admitted that any of these theories might be true, obviously it damages the reputation and would literally destroy careers. Instead, they focused on making anyone who questioned them look like a nut job, a crazy conspiracy theorist that everybody should just ignore. Johnny Douglas, a former FBI profiler, interviewed David for several hours. And he concluded that David definitely acted alone. In fact, he was such an introverted loner that he wasn't capable of collaborating with a group of people for any reason, let alone to commit violent crimes. But not everyone agreed. Multiple detectives and former detectives dedicated hundreds of hours to reviewing all the evidence they could get their hands on. And they presented all their findings to the NYPD. All they wanted was access to the rest of the case files to continue the investigation. Yet every single one of their requests has been denied. So it's like, hmm, cover up. You know, what are why won't they at least let them look into it? I mean, they really want to bury this they do. deep, deep into the ground and hope it never comes out again. 
but I don't know about that. I mean, mm-hmm. I, th- I feel like maybe it could resurface at some time in the future. So if there are murderous cult members still out there operating in secret, they won't be caught for the Son of Sam shootings. Some other crime will have to be the one that takes them down, if anything ever does. Because the Process Church apparently kind of like decommissioned themselves pretty soon after. I can't remember the exact dates. I want to say it's like late 70s. So like pretty much after the Son of Sam shootings, they said, oh, you know, we had nothing to do with it and kind of close their doors. But I think there's more to the story there that I'd love to dig into into the future. And obviously, like I mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago, the Charles Manson connection, I definitely want to investigate that a little bit more. Yeah. This case, man, I mean, going into this, I had no fucking clue how crazy this gets. And, same. And yeah, I mean, at the same, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, conspiracy theorists, this or that. But when there's this much evidence and there's there's clear connections between these different entities and bodies of people and cults, I mean, you can't just ignore it. You can't right. just be like, no way that would ever be happen. I mean, yeah. and people say like, you know, this was around the same time that the country was kind of going through the satanic panic period where the media was just like pump, you know, pumping out all this information yeah. about how Satanism is this evil, horrible thing. And, you know, it just kind of fed into this, this theory that Mari Terry's putting forward about a satanic cult that's, you know, doing all this horrible, horrible shit. So mm-hmm. I can see how some people are like, oh, well, maybe it was just, a re-, you know, Mari Terry's findings are just a result of kind of the time period and the fact that everybody was freaking out about satanists and you know satanic rituals so therefore you know it makes it seem more legitimate than it actually is so i kind of i kind of see both sides and how people view it but personally i believe that there's these connections are real and that mari terry was very close Mm -hmm. before he died to really figuring out the truth of yeah of what was actually going on and maybe even stumbling upon a much darker sinister ring of people that maybe even still operate today i mean who knows i mean obviously there's no evidence to back that up but yeah and that could be possible it could be possible but at the end of the day for me like there were so many witnesses who claimed to have seen someone who doesn't look like david berkowitz yeah so oh yeah as far like, as the son of sam shootings go i think it was 100 percent yeah multiple people involved oh yeah right no doubt but when it comes to the cult connections mm-hmm. and the satanic you know connections and all that i think i think that's where people are like well you know it could have just been kind of a coincidence that they're involved in that and you know there's not really anything more to that because it just was kind of the time period but honestly right. i think I there, there could yeah. be some more to uncover there i feel like than you know what we know so that's where i will leave you (laughs) with the sun or sons of sam descent into darkness again really good documentary definitely recommend watching it we'll link it below for those that want to check it out but hopefully you enjoyed and found this episode of the lights out podcast interesting again this was part two if you have not listened to part one yet highly recommend you go do so because we really go into the the shootings a lot more in, in a lot more detail and just kind of give you that background on David Berkowitz and his kind of life story. So definitely check that out. But yeah, this was the this is the end of our two-part episode on the Son of Sam case. Let us know if you like us to take deep dives on cases like this that you enjoyed the two parts because maybe we'll kind of break some some cases up in the future that just have so much information mm-hmm. and it's hard to like sit here and you know go three hours on a recording and yeah you know, just try to cover it all in one sweep but 
you know breaking it up really allows us to you know go into even more depth and yeah allows it gives us more time to really dig in deep into them so Mm -hmm. definitely let us know but we'll go ahead and wrap up today there make sure you subscribe to us on apple Podcasts and youtube and until next time lights out everybody